If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We're continuing to plow through 1 John. We made it to chapter 4. It's only taken us, a, I don't know, seven or eight weeks to get there. Um, and we're going to kind of put it on pause here. Next week, we'll hit 1 John chapter 4 again, put it on pause, come back to it. Uh, after Advent and finish it up after the first of the year. Um, but this morning we're in First John 4, 1-6 as we continue to look at this little book that God has given us to assure us of whether or not we know God rightly, we know God truly, we know God as He's revealed Himself in His Son. And the evidences of that. And so this morning, 1 John 4, 1-6, I'll read it. If you don't have it, it's on the screen behind me. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. One of the ongoing trajectories over the course of uh, God's revelation in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is this. There's a cosmic conflict going on. A war over the souls of mankind. You see it in Genesis whenever the serpent comes to deceive, when the evil one comes to deceive our first parents into taking of the things that God had placed off limits. And from that point forward as sin enters into the world there is a conflict that's going on in spiritual realms. Not just here in the physical realm but in a spiritual realm for the hearts and souls and minds of men and women. You see it in the end of the book as well as you get to the book of Revelation, right? And there's a great dragon trying to eat this child that's set to be born as he's born, but he can't, over, he can't consume him, he can't devour him, right? Because Satan is never able to overcome God's Messiah and the Christ. And yet there is still this cosmic battle that's being waged. In fact, we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, there's this, this text that Paul speaks of whenever he writes about spiritual warfare, and he says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And listen, within this cosmic battle, this cosmic conflict that's taking place between God and this, his enemy, Satan, right? We've seen throughout the book of 1 John, we've seen over and over again that in, within this conflict, there's a number of black and white statements that John makes about the conflict that's raging and has been since the inception of human history and will be until God draws it all to a close. John says there's a conflict between light and darkness, he says there's a conflict between truth and falsehood, a conflict between the children of God and the children of the devil. There's a conflict between love and hatred. And in this conflict, listen church, what Satan desires is the destruction of spiritual truth. He wants to annihilate it. But, un but fortunately for us, unfortunately for him, he's not able to, and so what he settles for whenever destruction is not possible is corruption. Right, are you with me? When destruction is not possible, what he settles for is 
corruption of spiritual truth. And one weapon that he employs in the conflict is the poisoning of churches with false teaching. With false teaching. See, warnings about false prophets and false teachers operating within the Christian community are found all over the Bible. Let me give you one example. In Matthew chapter 7, the Jesus Sermon on the Mount he, in ver- chapter 7, verse 15 and following, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they appear harmless, but internally they are looking to consume and devour. Right, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 7. You can read about it in Mark chapter 13. You can read about them in Second Peter chapter 2 and here in First John chapter 4. That there are false teachers who are operating with demonic doctrines and satanic uh, aspirations. Now listen, most of us in the room, whenever you think of the demonic and you think of the satanic, this is what we think of, horror movies, right? We think of little kids, right, with their heads spinning around in circles on their necks. That's what we think of. We think of eyes glowing red just beating out from a closet, right, or under a bed ready to come and, and, and eat us. Or we tend to think of like this like gravelly deep voice, computer synthesized voice. That's what we tend to think of when we think of the demonic and the satanic. And listen, while, while that is, at t- not necessarily the head spinning around in circle thing, but listen, while that may be at times the kind of end of the spectrum, so often times, listen, demonic activity is simply the slow introduction of lies into the mind and deception over the course of time. It's like arsenic poisoning, right? Arsenic poisoning doesn't usually take place in large doses and large quantities, but it takes place slowly over the course of time. And if you introduce enough arsenic into a person's system, it begins to have detrimental effects on their health. Over prolonged periods of time, it results in all kinds of physical problems. Problems with the lungs, problems with the liver, problems with the kidneys, problems with the skin, the heart, and the eyes. Everything becomes affected by the slow introduction of this poison into the body. And listen, one old Anglican bishop said it well when he said, J.C. Ryle said this, he said, to hear unscriptural teaching 52 Sundays in every year is a serious thing. It is a continual dropping of slow poison into the mind. It has an effect over the course of time. And given this reality, listen, given this reality, and this conflict between the two spiritual realms, John calls us to discern the truth from a lie, and then he gives us criteria for doing so. That's what we want to look at this morning. How do we discern the truth from lies? Right? And so John calls us to that and then gives us some criteria, some benchmarks by which we can do it. Let's first look at the call. First thing that John says, right out of the gate, he says this. He says, test the spirits. Test the spirits. There are two commands in verse 1. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. When John says test, the word test that he uses there, it oftentimes in the Greek language was used to refer to the testing of certain metals, right? Whenever you dug up a piece of ore out of the earth, you wanted to test it to see if it, how pure it was, how authentic it was, how m- perhaps mixed it was with other minerals, with other pieces of material, 
And so they would test the metals to see if they were, if they were unalloyed and genuine. And that's what John has in mind here. He says, test the spirits because you want to know how authentic, how pure, how unmixed it is with other worldly philosophies. And listen, by spirits, listen, John's likely referring to a person who's inspired by a spirit. Teachers, prophets, so the individual spirit of a prophet which might be inspired by God or Satan. Because listen, every prophet is inspired by a spirit, not necessarily the spirit. Every teacher is inspired by a spirit, but not necessarily the spirit. And so when someone stands up to declare, thus saith the Lord, we have to ask the question, has the Lord thus saith? Right? You have to ask the question. And so test what is being said. Test what's under the surface of this teaching. And John says, here's why you've got to do it. Because teaching, listen, it is not neutral. It is spiritual. We have to recognize this, church. Teaching is not neutral. There is a spiritual component to teaching. In verse 1, John tells us that the reason we must not believe every person claiming to be inspired by the Spirit is because there are false prophets who've gone out from the church and into the world. And then John tells us several things about these false prophets. Listen to what he says. They are from the world as opposed to being from God. They speak from the world as opposed to speaking the truth of God. The world listens to them as opposed to the people of God. They have the spirit of the Antichrist as opposed to the spirit of God. And listen, they're not only espousing intellectual ideas, right? It's, it's not like intellectual badminton where they're just kind of sitting there and knocking the little uh, birdie over the net. Over, you know, just kind of, oh, this is fun. Like we get to spar on these different ideas. But rather, instead of just espousing intellectual ideas, underneath every false prophet is a spirit. Underneath every divergent doctrine is a demon. Because teaching, information is not neutral. It is spiritual. And listen, this is important for us to understand because we live in an age that most historians have deemed to be the information, age of information. The age of information. Listen, in, in, while the Industrial Revolution began in the 19th century, the Information Revolution, as some historians have called it, began in the 20th century. And we live in an era a historic period characterized by the rapid shift from traditional industry to, to more uh, economy based upon information and technology. Listen, if you have a smartphone in your pocket, where is it? There it is back there. If you have a smartphone, you have at your fingertips access to information that a, a generation prior to us, 50 years ago, would have, would have been... It would have been unfathomable to them how much information you have access to in this little device. They couldn't have conceived of how much you could find on this little device. The computing power that it has and the information that's being circulated on the World Wide Web, right? Man, I was a child of the 90s and so I remember when the internet first became a thing. Okay? And you could like go www. And find all kinds of different stuff. Right? But, but that has, listen, that has come and gone. And it, is, it, it has increased so rapidly. In fact, the amount of information that's out there, most statisticians are saying that it doubles every two years. The amount of information accessible and available, things that we're learning and things that are being pushed out. And within all that plethora of information, 
there are people who are espousing either the truth or a truth. Right? Either the truth, they say that they have the corner on the market, or a truth saying, this is what works for me, you need to find what works for you. And in the information age, we need to understand that this teaching that we might be receiving, it might be from self-help seminars, self-help books, it might be from other pastors, it might be from theologians, it might be from people on, on other continents and other countries, it might be people from cities here within our nation, it could be people within our own community. That whatever they're teaching about the ultimate realities of life, whatever they're teaching about the makeup of the human condition, the human soul, the human heart, whatever they're teaching about why we exist, why we're here, whatever they're teaching is not neutral. But there is a spirit underneath that. There's a source that it's springing up from in this great conflict for the souls of men and women. Under every false prophet is, every false teacher is a spirit. And so how do we identify them? John gives us some criteria, and that's what we're going to take a look at in the bulk of this message. How do we identify, how do we test these spirits, identify false prophets, and discern truth from error? Let me give you three things. All right, that sounds so convenient, doesn't it? It sounds like a good typical preacher. Let me give you three things to test. First of all, you've got to test what they report. You've got to test what they report. See, <clears throat> and, and, and listen, in order to validate what they report, you have to verify it against something. It has to be some kind of standard that you're measuring it against. Right? If, if you think about this, I don't know if you've ever heard this illustration. I'll try and break it down for you this way. But whenever uh, an FBI agent comes through training and they're going to work on a task force that's going to help identify counterfeit currency, what they don't do is they don't take them in a room, lock them behind closed doors with every possible fake bill or coin that's ever been conceived of or constructed. That is not how they teach them to identify counterfeit currency, right? What they do rather is they take them and they expose them over and over and over and over and over and over and did I say over? Over to authentic, genuine currency that's printed at the U.S. Mint on those presses. Because when you handle the real thing enough, then you're able to identify something that doesn't, just doesn't seem right about this bill or about this coin. Its size is a little bit off. Its weight is a little bit different. The paper the, feels differently between your fingertips Right, where, the, where, where the, 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 the ink doesn't, doesn't have the same kind of shimmer on it. So they teach them to identify what is false by handling what is true, and becoming so acquainted with what is true that when what is false gets passed across a counter or comes into their possession, they can identify it immediately. That is not authentic currency. That didn't come from the mint. It came from a warehouse in Philly somewhere, Right? And so that's how they teach you to handle or identify false currency. And so they have to be a standard by which you measure it against. In fact, the word test literally means to prove the authenticity of something. It's that it's genuine. It's the genuine article. And so let me give you a test. How do you test what they report? Let me tell you how, they, how you test what they report. Do they say about Jesus what he said about himself? This is how you test what they report. 
Do they say about Jesus what Jesus said about himself? Listen, in verse 3, John says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, whereas every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That word confess in the Greek language, it literally means this, to say the same thing, to agree with. And so when we confess our sins to God, we're not just saying, yeah, I, I may have made a mistake, but we're saying, no, God, I see my sin the same way that you see my sin. It is destructive, it is deadly, it is sinful, it is corrosive to my soul and to human relationships and to my relationship with you, and I acknowledge that to you. I'm saying the same thing about this thing that I thought, this thing that I, this motivation that I had, or this thing that I did that you say about those. I'm saying the same thing as you. And so when it comes to confessing Jesus Christ come in the flesh, that God entered into human history, born of a virgin, and was clothed in flesh, that to confess that is to say the same thing about Jesus that he says about himself. So what does Jesus say about himself? Listen, oh, this is going to be fun. You guys are going to enjoy this. Listen, where else should you go than to the author who has written about what Jesus says about himself over and over and over again? In John's gospel, I want to give you a rundown. Some of you, if you're note takers, get your pens ready, right? In John's gospel, in John chapter 8, verse 58 and 59, listen to what Jesus says about himself. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And then, verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to kill Jesus when he says, before Abraham was, I am? Because what Jesus is saying to them is this, I am preexistent, I am one with the Father, I am the one who showed up there in the burning bush, I am God. When God reveals himself to Moses and says, go let my, release my people from slavery in Egypt, and he says, who do I say should, if they ask me, who sent me? And what does God say through the bush? Tell him, I am sent you. Not I was or I will be, but I am. Constant, steady, always and forever, I am. And Jesus takes that name on his lips to describe himself. He's saying that he is God. John 6, 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I am fully satisfying. I can meet every human need. Every need that you have, I'm able to fill it. I'm able to satisfy it. You can feast on me and find everything that you're looking for in me. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you want life, Jesus says, come to me because I am the light that shines forth and shows you where to walk, how to walk. John 8, 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. That I am He, I am He who? I am the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man? In Daniel, I love this, I love this. In Daniel, Daniel has this vision that he sees and he sees what he describes, one like a Son of Man going before the Ancient of Days. 
and the Ancient of Days is, 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 is God the Father, and the one like the Son of Man is the pre-incarnate Christ coming before him. And God and, and, and the Ancient of Days bestows all kind of power and dominion and authority to rule upon the Son of Man. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up, then you will know that when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am the one Daniel saw. I am the Son of Man, pre-existent, with all authority, all power, all rule, all dominion handed over to me by my Father. John 10, 7-11, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Right? You see, we're, we're like sheep, right? Who have gone astray, each turned to their own way, as, as the prophets would say. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus' broken body and shed blood will become the doorway by which we have access to God. He says, I am the door. But not only does he say, I am the door in John 10, he also says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who cares for you. I attend your soul. I am the shepherd who makes you walk and lie down in green pastures. I am the one who leads you beside still waters. I am the one who's able to direct your paths and make them straight. But not only do I do that, he says, I'm the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. I give myself up. I give myself over. I allow myself to be crucified and my body torn in two. John 10, 37 to 38, he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That we are one in essence. Though we're different in persons, the Trinity, the, the triune confession says I'm one in essence. I'm the, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. John 13, 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. I'm the one who has come to instruct you and the one who's come to rule over you for your good. In John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. When you're connected to me, you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the one that nourishes you. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, there is no other means, mode, method, or path towards salvation. I am it. Do they say the same thing about Jesus that Jesus says about himself? Test what they report. Jesus is the center of the Christian faith. And if they are a true teacher, then they are saying the same thing about Jesus that he says about himself. And they are constantly wanting to point you to this Jesus. Not towards them to make you dependent upon their teaching or their particular interpretation, but towards Jesus. See Jesus high and lifted up. Come to Jesus to be satisfied, not me. Come to Jesus to be filled, not me. Come to Jesus to be led, not me. Come to Jesus. They're constantly pointing you toward him, not towards them. Are they saying the same thing about Jesus that he says about himself? Now listen, let me give you a little caveat here. You've got to be careful at times. You've got to be careful at times because you can't believe every claim of spiritual truth just because they use the same language. Because language is like a bucket. You can fill it with whatever you want to put in it. Does that make sense? 
You can fill it with whatever you want to put in it. They may have a different meaning with the language that they're using when it comes to false teaching. Look, one of the eras in church history which there was just all kinds of rampant false teaching and heresy was the early church era. What historians, church historians know as the church fathers. So I want to re- I would give you a, a quote from one of the church fathers, a guy by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus said this, he said, Error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out as in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to, the, to be, uh, to the inexperienced, more true than the truth itself. See, lies can get all dressed up in language. So you gotta, you gotta, when they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, what Jesus? Which Jesus are you talking about? Yeah, I believe in God. Which, which God are we talking about? Let's just go ahead and get clear here. Which, which God are we talking about? Let's define some terms. It's the only way you can have a discussion these days because everyone imports whatever meaning they want to into the language that they're using. So you've got to be cautious. Second, not only do you test what they report, are they saying the same thing about Jesus that he said about himself, but you also test who they receive. In verse 6, John says, the test of a false prophet is found in whether or not they receive or try to rewrite the apostolic witness. I love what John says. Because John, listen, John does not say, whoever knows God listens to me. That's not what he says. Look at the text. Is that what he says? What does he say? Whoever knows God listens to us. Us. John's not stepping out saying, listen, I am the purveyor of the divine revelation. You come to me and feast and feed and I'll give it all to you. Just look to me. Don't listen to Peter. Don't listen to James. Don't listen to Andrew. Don't listen to any of these other jokers other than me. No, John says, whoever knows God listens to us to the church that has walked faithfully in the testimony about Jesus and the apostles who have proclaimed that testimony about Jesus. See, those possessed by the Spirit of God, they receive what has been delivered. In the book of Jude, we're told that, that, that one of the things that Jude says is he instructs the, the audience he's writing to, he says, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, there is this body of doctrine that's passed down from generation to generation that has come from the apostles to those that they discipled, to those that they discipled, to those that they discipled, from generation to generation to generation. And eventually it becomes canonized in the books of the Bible and the teachings of the apostles. And he says, listen, those who do not listen to us, us, plural, not me individually, but us, the testimony of the apostles, the testimony of the historic church as it's been passed down, says they are not from God whenever they strike out on their own with new and different and divergent doctrines. Another church father, Jerome, he said it this way, he said, we ought to remain in that church which was founded by the apostles and continues to this day. If you ever hear of any that are called Christians taking their name not from the Lord Jesus Christ, but from some other, and he gives a couple of different heretics. That's, they just named names back then, probably more than we do. He says, from the Marcionites or the Valentinians, men of the mountain or of the plain, you may be sure that you have, they are not the church of Christ, but a synagogue of the Antichrist. 
for the fact that they took their rise after the foundation of the church is proof that they are those who coming, whose coming the apostles foretold. And let them not flatter themselves if they think they have scriptural authority for their assertions since the devil himself quoted scripture and the essence of the scripture is not the letter but the meaning. Otherwise, if we follow the letter, we too can concoct a new dogma and assert that such persons as wear shoes and have two coats must not be received into the church. You know, you can take the letter of any text and create all kinds of stipulations with it, but the meaning is what God has embedded in those historical realities that took place. And what he revealed in the words that were written by the apostles. And so the apostolic witness, do they receive that or do they try to rewrite it? Who do they receive? Test who they receive. And then third, to test where they are sourced. Test where they are sourced. See, Paul, uh, John, I'm sorry, John says uh, in, in verse five, he says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Right, the, the teaching that they're delivering, the, the things that they're prophesying about, he says, listen, it is sourced in worldly philosophy and speculation. That's what John says. That's where it's sourced. And as a result, those whose and we said before, listen, listen, church, the world, the world is here is not referring to the material creation that God made and declared to be good. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a system of thought, of valuing, of loving, of living, as if all, all that there is is this material creation. Where we're infatuated with the temporal. Everything here and now, instant, Today, I want it, I need it, I gotta have it, right? I've got a microwave sitting by my stove that testifies to this way of thinking. And there's a whole section of food at the grocery store that testifies to this way of thinking, right? You just pop them in, hit five. You don't even have to push five, zero, zero now. You just hit five. It's like five minutes. All of a sudden, it just pops up another thing. Instant gratification, because I'm infatuated with the temporal. That's what John's referring to here. They have that kind of philosophic bent where everything's about the temporal. Everything's about here. Everything's about now. And there's a mass appeal to that message with no call to repentance. That's where the message is coming from. And because that's where it's coming from, those who embrace that way of thinking, they listen to that. They lap it up. Right? Like, like a dog on a hot summer day coming in, going to the water bowl and just <laughs> until it's all gone. They just lap it up. Right? Have you ever, uh, listen, in, in marriage, there's, there's, there's a book. It's called The Five Love Languages. You guys familiar with that book, Five Love Languages? Yeah, most of you probably read that book or heard of that book before, right? It talks about the ways you communicate and receive and understand love from your spouse. In a, mission, in a mission field context, there's a, um, a, a, a term talk, that, that they use to talk about heart languages. Right? The heart language of a people is the language that they emote in, that they feel in. They may be able to understand another language, right? They may be able to cognitive, cognitively, intellectually understand what you're saying, but they don't feel, they don't emote in that language. 
Right? And so that's why there's a need to translate the Bible into all these other languages so that, God, that, that God's work can go forth in the heart language of peoples across the earth, all tribes, tongues, and nations. But listen, when it comes to the heart language of the world, the language that they speak, the way they understand and give love, it all centers around what is temporal because that is the value system with which it operates. And John says false teachers, false prophets, they come from that philosophic bent and that is the heart language they are speaking. And so people are emoting in that language and responding to that message because everything is centered on the here and now. That's what John is saying. So you've got to test where they're sourced. You've got to test with who they receive. You've got to test what they report. These are the three tests that John gives us in the text. Now, what I, I want to close, I want to close by, by saying, how do we prevent ourselves from being deceived? Right? Because it, truth be known, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I have asked you to raise your hand about the fair and about other things that you guys just don't raise your hand, so I, I, I doubt you'd raise your hand anyway. But I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this. But I wonder how many of us in the room this morning would say, if we were looking in the mirror and it was just ourselves and God, I, if this is that serious, I'm not sure that I would stand the test, that I wouldn't be deceived. So how do I keep from being deceived? How do, I, how do I grow to be able to test what they're reporting and who they're receiving and where their source is? Let me give you two things as we close. First, you have to fill up on sound teaching. You have to fill up on sound teaching because prolonged exposure to a way of thinking, valuing, living, and loving has a profound influence on you either negatively or positively. And what you fill up on will influence you. Listen, if you pull up in your car to a gas station and you pull up to the pump and you, and you pump 30 gallons, right? And you got a big SUV that just guzzles gas. You pump 30, or if you got a little hybrid, right? It takes like five gallons. Whatever, you fill up the tank and you pump bad gas into that tank that's going to now be pulled up by the fuel pump into that engine. It's going to affect the way that engine runs. Right? If you fill up on low quality bad gas, it's going to affect the way the engine performs. If you eat bad food in a restaurant, it might give you some bad gas later, but it also, it also might, listen, give you food poisoning. You consume undercooked food. It'll, give you food. it'll affect your whole system, right? It, it'll affect your whole body. If you fill up on foolish advice and act on it, then you will do harm to others and yourself. You know, the Proverbs tell us that the companion of fools suffers harm. See, what you fill yourself up with influences how you think, what you love, how you live. 
And so in order to defend ourselves from deception, you have to fill up on sound teaching. Remember at the beginning, J.C. Ryle says, if you expose yourself to unscriptural teaching 52 Sundays a year, it's like slow poison being dripped into your mind. But if, on the other hand, you fill up on sound teaching 52 Sundays a year, for some of us, I, some of us I wish it would be like 30. Like, can we get to 30? Maybe 35. Right, but 52 Sundays a year, you fill up on sound teaching. What kind of impact would that have on your life? In helping to distinguish from the truth from error. Mm. And, and listen, it's not, it's not just any teaching. Right, it's, it's, <laughs> I've, it's, it's blown me away in the past. I've had people who have sat under the teaching that's come out of this church and at the same time listen to the teaching that's being broadcast on particular television stations. And it's like, man, I, I love the teaching here, but also I love the teaching from this guy. I'm like, do, do you, either you're not hearing what I'm saying, or you're not hearing what this person is saying. One of the two, because we're saying different things. Right? And one of the ways in which that has crept into the American church, in fact, it's full bore in the American church now, is through the prosperity gospel. In 2013, a rapper by the name of Shai Lin, in a song called False Teachers, he pleads with the rest of the world not to be deceived by the Americans exporting prosperity theology in their missionary endeavors in other parts of the globe. Listen to what he says. He says, don't be deceived by this funny biz. Listen, I, I can't say it as cleverly and as compellingly as he raps it, okay? But don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is to reconciliation with God. That's the end. He came to redeem us from sin, and that is the message forever I yell. If you're living your best life now, you're heading for hell. Because if your best life is today, then the, what's coming in the future in glory will be... Mm, it, what are you really living for? He says, turn off TBN, that channel is overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels can squeeze through the eye of a needle. And listen, if you fill up on prosperity teaching, what happens when suffering, affliction, trials, and disappointments show up on your doorstep? You have no category to place those. And not only what happens when they show up on your doorstep ringing the doorbell, but what happens when they move into your extra bedroom and they settle in for a prolonged season? You have no way to cope, no way to deal with suffering if you believe that God, his will for every single one of us is that we be healthy and wealthy. You have no category for it. And you have no way to cope. This is why we need teaching that is sound, that is rooted in the scriptures, that comes off the pages of the Bible. It's not us trying to import our ideas and take one text and flip it on its head, use it as a launching point to get to whatever I want to talk about. But it's a 
it's a particular way of teaching. This is why when we, you come through our new members process, I tell you that predominantly the overwhelming arc of teaching that I hope you will heal from this pulpit is with the grain of Scripture, working through books of the Bible, expositing text as they stand on the page and trying to bring those out into life. What's the truth the author intended to communicate? And then let's talk about that and how it intersects with where you are today. That's expository preaching. Thabiti Anabwile, who's a pastor up in Washington, D.C., said there's a certain kind of preaching that takes the apostles' words, explains their words, and applies their words is the kind of preaching that enables us to listen to what they had to say in our day. We call this expositional preaching because it exposes what they have written and the meaning and application of their words. When you listen to the word of God expositionally preached, you're listening to the apostles and ultimately you're listening to God himself. Church, we have to fill up on sound teaching. We have to make a... We, we, I, could, I could talk about this for a long time. A really long time, but we got food to get to to fill up on as well. But listen, <clears throat> if you're not filling up on sound teaching, you're filling up on something. And it will influence and affect how you live, what you love, what you think, what you value. And listen, I want to I throw this out there to you too. As you read the word for yourself and study the word for yourself, here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to test everything that comes out of this pulpit from this book. I want to put myself on the hook for that and anybody else who teaches from this pulpit on the hook for that. That everything that comes from here should be from here. I got to move. The last thing. That we, that we, you have to remember as you seek to avoid deception is this, is you've got to give credit where it's due. Listen, the, there's a beautiful statement in the middle of this text. In verse 4, John says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, the false teachers, the false prophets, the spirits of Antichrist who are opposed to Jesus and what he's done. You've overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, John doesn't say, the reason you've overcome is because you were just smarter than everyone else. He doesn't say the reason you've overcome is because your IQ is off the charts. He doesn't say the reason you've overcome is because you can bench press 465 pounds and you're just stronger than everybody. You just beat them down. He doesn't say the reason you've avoided false teachers is because you intimidate them. Right, with your ability to verbally spar. It's not what he says at all. It has nothing to do with your strength, with your intellectual acuity. It has nothing to do with what your, how high or low your IQ is, what your ACT score was, what your GPA in college was, what your GPA in high school was. It has nothing to do with what your GPA was in elementary school. It has nothing to do with your smart, but with the spirit that is in you, that is stronger and greater and more powerful than that which is in the world. 
that he's there to, as we said last week, to persuade you of the truth, that you would walk in it and embrace it. There are times in which you may hear a teaching that you go, that just doesn't settle right, and a part of it is because you've become so familiar with the authentic, and the ho- also because the Holy Spirit is confirming that which is real and is denying that which is false. It's giving you a check there, a hesitancy if you're from God. That's what John says. And so don't, don't puff up your chest and swell up your pride and say, listen, I got a master's in theology and a doctorate in philosophy and that's why I can distinguish truth from error. It's not what John says. It says the reason you can distinguish truth is because the very spirit of God. Is Satan strong? Yes, but the spirit is stronger. Are the false prophets cunning? Yes, but the spirit is wiser. Are false teachers damaging and destructive? Yes, but the spirit is able to heal even the damage and destruction that they have done. He's able to undo. He is greater. So don't take the glory for yourself, but give it to him. Fill up on sound teaching. Dwell on what is true and give credit where it's due. As you test where they're coming from, test what they're receiving, who they're receiving, and test what they're reporting. I'm going to close with this. John says two places in this text, in these six verses. In verse 1, he says, beloved. And in verse 4, he says, little children. You know what those terms are? They're terms of affection. Terms of a good, loving pastor who wants to present this church that God has given him oversight of to Jesus Christ one day, spotless and blameless, having been washed by his word and cleansed by his spirit. And listen, if I and our elders did not love you, we would not say things like this to you. This does not come out of a place of trying to bash and beat up other churches even in our community, but comes out of a place of love and affection for you and for the welfare of your soul. That indeed you would know the truth and that you would walk in the truth. So let's pray to that end. Let's pray together. Father, today, It's a sobering message. As we think about the lies and deception that circulate in this information age in which we live. God, help us to distinguish the truth from lies. Help us to distinguish and know whether we are, whether we are and teachers are from God or not from God. Not from you. by testing whether they say the same thing about Jesus that he said about himself in his incarnation. May that be our filter that we run the center of doctrine through. Who is your son and what has he done? Father, may we not depart from the apostolic witness to follow those who are trying to rewrite it. 
And may we not embrace a way of thinking and loving and living and valuing that is infatuated with the, with the temporal, this worldly system, God, but may we value the eternal. May our values be shaped by values of the kingdom. May you bear within us virtues by the production of fruit by your Holy Spirit that gives us steadfastness in our suffering. As we fill up on sound teaching, as we feast on the words that you've given to us through your apostles that we aim every week to expose here at Redeemer. And Father, may you expose us to other sound expositional preachers and teachers of your word, to good resources to help us understand some of the tougher areas of the scriptures. And may your spirit illumine those things for us through the teaching of gifted individuals. And Father, at the end of the day, let us not stand back in glory and how wise or smart we are. But give you praise and honor because of the spirit that abides within us who is greater than the one that is in the world. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning out of love and affection for them that you would keep us from error, that you would keep us from deception so that our lives might bring glory to you and to your Son. By the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.